Welcome to episode number eight of Upstate and Litigate. I'm Derek Spada. And I'm John DeGaspers. We're personal injury lawyers here in the Hudson Valley. We hope that you've been enjoying the show and find it educational. Derek, today we have a special guest, our first ever guest, our founder and mentor, uh, founding partner of Bosch and Keegan, Eli Bosch. Eli, thanks for coming on. Good morning, partners. It's good to see you. I know I've been participating and throwing the show for the last so many months, and now it's good to be here. Yeah, we needed a lot of practice. As you can tell, it's somewhat awkward sitting here and addressing each other through the microphones, but uh, we felt we were finally ready, and who better than, than you? Because you founded the firm, and you gave Derek and I uh, opportunities to find our way and our passion. So we thought, let's talk about you for a minute. And this morning when I was getting ready, I thought you're probably one of the most successful, if not most experienced personal injury lawyers in the Hudson Valley. So I thought, tell us a little bit. Why don't you tell us and the viewers a little bit about your success here in Ulster County? Well, my success is uh, one by one, each client. And I've been very blessed and I'm extremely grateful to be able to be an attorney, to even get there. My father had an eighth grade education, um, got hurt seriously. We had nothing before he got hurt and had less after he got hurt and went to different lawyers. And there was really no case. And finally, somebody who'd been sort of like my father's, what do you say, countryman, lawnsman would be the Yiddish term, um, got workers' compensation after um, no money for over a year. And I realized when I was 13 that lawyers are there to help people. And uh, when you have nowhere else to turn, um, try and get a lawyer to help you. And I saw the benefit of it. And, and it was Seymour Wobolowski. And he was like a, um, I would say, like a, a near God in our family. It changed the life. We had subsistence. We could live. And uh, at 13, it was a really, really, really long range goal. It was always in the back of my mind. Um, but to get through high school, um, college, um, the Navy, um, then go to law school, uh, then come back to my hometown and be, become a lawyer, still with my eye on becoming a lawyer to help people who are injured, was such a far off goal when you're 13. And then to realize it and then to have a career of almost 50 years doing just what I always wanted to do, help people who are injured. Um, It's just been a blessing to me on a a daily basis. And now at this point in my career, to still be quite active and to mentor people who are following me and what I have done. um, And I would say um, is the greatest compliment and the greatest gift is to see the success of uh, my partners helping other people with the same objective, same goal, same ethos that I had. So I'm, I'm really, really, really fortunate. It's just great to be here in my hometown. Kingston's evolved. Um, the practice of law has certainly changed dramatically over time. Uh, and to see the younger generations coming along and being just as successful um, is a great gift to me. So I'm extremely, extremely grateful for it. Do you attribute some of your success to practicing in the community that you were born and raised in? Absolutely. I like my clients. Some, some of them I love, some give me a hard time, but I see them at Hannaford. I see them on the street. I see them all over. And some people are from down the roundout where I grew up, uh, from Hone Street, from 
of Beale Street, from East Union Street, uh, from Uptown Kingston, people I played football with, people I played basketball with, kids from the park, second, third, even fourth generations of families, and then new people who come in, and then I can embrace them and have them become part of our community. I really, really like being in my hometown. I lived in, you know, in, in California, I lived in D.C., I've been in in school, Albany, Springfield, Mass. Um, I always thought when I went to college that I would probably not return to Kingston. I thought in my mind's eye when I went to college, I'd probably go to a medium-sized city and live there. And I thought it was very, very, very unlikely I'd come back here. Uh, when the full circle came around after law school, take the New York bar, live in uh, Colonial Gardens, low-income housing with my mother, was I gonna stay here, was gonna go to California? Um, it just felt right. I got uh, to see people and help people that I know and grew up with. And to be in your hometown, um, there's nothing like it. And uh, I've seen many changes in Kingston, seen it come from an IBM city to uh, uh, somewhat on the rocks for a while, and to see it rejuvenate now and uh, metamorphosize into what it's becoming. Um, it's just great. It's just comfortable. And uh, it's also fun because it's unfolding. And uh, who knows where we're going to go? Tell us but, about the uh, the firm. I started it and how it how it evolved over the years. Uh, it was always my objective to be a lawyer representing people who are injured. And even in law school, I remember I took like an interview with an insurance company, thinking I'd learn how cases were defended. I knew what they did to my father. Uh, paid no money, sent him to a phony doctor, said he wasn't injured, it wasn't from the accident, even though he was injured. That was our, our, our topic last time, was the and, uh, and this in, is the, inverse I, insurance fraud. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I saw it happen. My father fell 14 feet, sustained brain injury, other injuries. They sent him to a doctor. Doctor said he won't live for a year. Uh, the workers' compensation carrier didn't make any voluntary payments. Nobody wanted to get involved in, in the comp case even because it was, you know, there was no money. You had to go, you had to go win it. And uh, but had a good family doctor, Doctor Amitrano, who had seen my father before the fall, so he could uh, he could give a status before and after, and uh, could use his testimony to establish the case. And uh, but I saw what it was like how the game was played, that the insurance companies are just about business. They're not about um, helping people. It's when people say, oh, it's my insurance, uh, they don't know what they're talking about. Uh, and I saw, so I saw that. And um, um, so then when I went to law school, I thought, well, I want to see how the opposite side, the other side operates to know how to best um, beat them, to win to help my clients because it's just an uphill battle against insurance companies. And they have more money than all the banks in the world. Um, they, every shopping center, every house, every car, uh, health insurance, everybody has insurance, but not everybody has a bank account. But the insurance industry is massive and they're into making profits. So how would I be able to navigate my legal career and, 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 and with any real um, chance of winning, uh, succeed. And so I thought that I should know how they operate. And so I thought about that. Nobody hired me. I came back here, little general practice with Al Minetti. And uh, then I worked uh, for a Supreme Court judge, Aaron Klein. And the principal trials in, in Supreme Court 
uh, throughout the state of New York for personal injury cases. So I got to observe them, how they were prosecuted, how the different defense attorneys defended the cases on behalf of their clients, which were in, a, in actuality insurance companies. I saw how that was done, the different strategies and, and allocation of funds and use of witnesses. So I got to observe that. And then um, 40 years ago on July 1st, I went into practice with Bill Kern, who principally had about 75% of his practice was personal injury representing people who are injured. So I got to where I wanted to go 40 years ago. And um, from that day on, I've got the opportunity to help people one-on-one, -on -one, families one-on-one. -on -one, and uh, I'm still amazed to an extent that I was able to do it. And uh, I did it on a one-on-one -on -one basis. Every client, every case was to concentrate on the client, to do well for them wasn't about my reputation, wasn't about my ego, wasn't about making money, was about helping those people who came through the door and looked to me just like my father looked to Seymour Werbelowski. And um, it's been a lot of fun. On, on a, on a uh, more personal level, you at some point decided you were going to leave your partnership with Bill Curran and you thought, I'm, I'm going to start my own law practice. What was that? What was that experience like? What did did Susan, your wife or uh, partner at the time, support you? Were you scared? It was really crazy. Um, it wasn't. I would have um, stayed with Bill, and if he never came to the office and supported him fifty fifty, he was. Uh, <laughs> how would I say? He was an effective lawyer, but he was a lot of trouble. He was trouble with the, uh, the staff, with the secretaries, with other lawyers. He had. Um, I don't know if you, it wasn't an alcohol problem because he had no problem drinking, but, he, but he, his interpersonal relationships were challenging, let me put it that way. Um, and uh, so then going out on my own was just uh, not something I had uh, thought I would do. I thought that he would retire, but things didn't go that way. The firm broke up and I had the support of my wife. Uh, obviously, Susan was fantastic. You can do nothing in life without your life partner. And uh, I've been, I was so blessed by having that support. I never had any, how would I say, anything but um, support on, on a level, uh, a personal level at home. It made things so much easier. And when I went on my own, I took three secretaries with me, three top flight legal assistants who were fantastic. And I was going to go solo. And, uh, and I thought at the time, would I be able to pay the salaries of three secretaries as a solo lawyer, only four years after leaving uh, clerkship with the judge, um, would I have enough business to support that? And, but I thought that, it would, that they were all uh, terrific um, assets to me. And I thought that some other firm would approach me and one of the assets would be that I had really good legal staff I could bring with me to, to a firm. Uh, what happened was that the three of them kept me really busy, and I kept them really busy. And from day one, the phone never stopped ringing. Um, probably 75, 80 percent of the clients from uh, Kern and Bosch came with me. Um, and it was just exciting. And uh, it just never stopped. And, um, and then I was way, way, way too busy and I, uh, within a couple of years, and I knew I needed help. And I, I, knew, I knew Maureen, uh, she'd help me with some malpractice cases because I was too busy to do the malpractice cases, which were much more work intensive. Um, so I would refer those out to Maureen and, and um, she was working in Albany and had um, 
had power to say. She was bitching about, you know, how she's a woman in this white shoe firm and they're not treating her right. And I'm thinking, wow, she's a terrific lawyer. Why don't you come work with me? And she thought I was kidding, but I said, oh, come on down for lunch. And uh, so she came back down and I hired Maureen and uh, then we could keep in-house the malpractice cases and things just kept expanding and the business just never stopped. Uh, just, just, just kept increasing. And I would say most of it had to do with, uh, you know, your reputation, you know, one-on-one referrals by ongoing and past clients. It's, it's helpful to be somebody from the hometown, but really you meet so many different people. Uh, now, it's interesting you say that because I, I think we all agree that currently at Bosch and Keegan, I would say, uh, you know, a fair number, if not at least half or, or better of our cases come referred by former clients, other lawyers. And, and to me, that speaks volumes of the work we do. But there is something unique about your experience as a personal injury lawyer in Ulster County. And I think it was your decision to advertise on the phone book. And not only did you advertise on or in the phone book, but you, you, you went for the magnets, you went for the front cover and the back cover. What, what did that do to your practice, if anything? It really helped. And so um, my wife, she would, if Susan was alive, she would tell you, every time I went to a city, I'd go look in a phone book, see how, what the lawyers were doing to advertise, be it San Diego, Phoenix, Chicago, Miami. I'd just see what they're doing and see what I thought was effective to me. So um, I used that as kind of a model as to what I should do for advertising. And what it was was always... Um, uh, keep the name out there, you know, top of the mind, uh, had tremendous amount of business, but uh, I guess you guys know I'm a pedal to the metal guy. That's who I am. I'm extremely competitive. Some of my friends would say from athletics, they never met anybody more competitive than me. And I'm just a competitor. So what, first thing is, is if you're out front, stay out there. And, um, that's what I did. And so I thought about, um, uh, the phone book, they're always pitching you pay monies. So I like, looked at other cities, see what I thought was effective there, and followed that, the lead of other uh, large firms or uh, in other cities to see what they did. And so I brought it back home here to Kingston, and it really worked well. I'll never and forget, when I started with Bosch and Keegan, that phone rang multiple times every day, and everyone said, I found you in the phone book, or I have your magnet on my fridge. And, I mean, it was phenomenal. And for, for those of you who are younger, Back in the old days, there was a book that had a bunch of phone numbers and their names and numbers in this book, and it was a free book that would get delivered to every house, every house in the country, I think. Every house, every apartment got this free book, and it had everybody's name and number in there, every business name and number, and you could get like an insert, like a little cardboard insert in the center. Oh, you which, did the which we had that, too, that cardboard right? insert in the center that would separate the, the people had from the, the businesses. That little tab on it. And now <laughs> yeah. it's like such a foreign concept that, it, you know, once upon a time, there was a book to oh, find numbers. <laughs> Can you put up uh, our, the picture of our new billboard? And so, Eli, I mean, you've kind of touched on it, but the, the only accident and injury cases off on the left there was uh, something that you were communicating in your in your phone book ads uh, and as part of your practice from the early days when I started what was the process uh, or the theory behind the decision to focus on accident cases? Well, I already told you that was my goal in life was to help people who are injured. And certainly insurance claims are the same as personal injury. They're basically synonymous, although there's 
property damage claims as well. So that was always my focus. And um, when I, uh, like, you know, 35 years ago, when I went out on my own, I didn't want to do and wasn't going to do anything else. I wasn't going to do criminal, real estate, divorce, administrative law, all things I was fairly competent in. Having been a law clerk, I had a really broad-based education of really litigation, administrative law, challenges to the government, et cetera, et cetera. But my lot in life, my objective was to help people who are injured. And so I wanted to differentiate myself from everybody else. And no other firm would say it in the county, in our area, really, that that's all I did was accident and injury cases. And that's what I began my advertising with. So everybody would identify Eli Bosch with accident and injury cases only. And, and back then, you, you were the first one to do that, weren't you? Or? Absolutely. And there really wasn't anybody else who was just solely accident injury cases in the county for years and years and years. And other firms from outside tried to come in here. Uh, they were just not successful. They closed their offices. They came in and then they left. And I just kept, like I say, pedal to the metal, had uh, advertised. I had an extremely busy count, uh, calendar, you know, 50% or more of all the personal injury cases in the county. Uh, I, I was a lawyer. And, uh, and then had Maureen and then eventually you guys. And, you know, things have changed. There's, you know, more competition. But at the beginning, I just stayed right out there um, and uh, segregating or differentiating myself uh, as only accident injury cases. So tell us uh, a little bit about your partnership with Maureen as, as an outsider. I mean, I'm kind of an insider, but, you know, I'm not you and Maureen. Uh, I think you have a very unique partnership. You got to be one of the longest lasting partnerships in Ulster County, a male female duo. Uh, you, you socialize uh, a lot outside of the office. I think you've vacationed together. So you have a very special relationship and like, like marriage, you have your highs and lows, but, but just, you know, tell the, tell the viewers a little bit about your partnership with Maureen as an overview. Um, uh, you know, it- Initially, it was uh, because of uh, Maureen's competence in uh, MedMal and her, you know, her personality. She's not uh, uh, a trillium. She's not a, you know, <laughs> Maureen is very, very much uh, comfortable in her own skin, and she represents people very, very well. Um, and I knew that. And she was articulate, smart, and knew into the medical. And I needed somebody initially to help me uh, on a part-time basis. So Maureen came in a part-time, and I could tell right away, her idea of part-time was like 40 hours. And she had, Jane was like just about a year old. And, uh, and I always, as you guys know, your family and your personal life, you know, I, I, I don't, my ethos is not to make you, um, how would I say, um, take um, second place for your family. Families comes first. The law, unfortunately, is a very jealous mistress. It sucks you in anyhow. But Maureen had her family and she could juggle and, uh, and her gender had nothing to do with it, had everything to do with her work ethic. And as soon as she began working, she looked like, wow, part-time was like full-time. Uh, the way Maureen just took to it and really enjoyed it and had unlimited amount of work to keep her busy. And so I knew that she was really... Um, uh, super competent, and and we complemented each other. She's a little more detail-oriented than I am. Um, but in every other way, we're similar. 
you know, and, you know, uh, uh, I would say articulate good uh, analytics on uh, cases, on telling what what's important, what's not, and, and working, working really hard. As you guys know, there is absolutely no substitute for hard work, and Warren was really a hard worker. And, and so she worked really hard, and so she was part-time to begin with, and then the evolution to a partner was, as you know, I just treat everybody the way I'd like to be treated in terms of compensation, in terms of benefits, period. Treat people, your employees, people who work for you, treat them on a pedestal. Treat them really well. If they don't deserve it, they're not the right person. And Maureen was certainly the right person, so treated her extremely well in terms of compensation. And uh, everybody said, why make somebody a partner? And you can just pay them, you know, top and, and then you would make more money, but that's not my business philosophy, is give persons, literally give them an ownership interest, and then it's their firm. And it's, the, it's not just a reward, it's what the right thing is to do. So making worrying a partner um, was easy, easy decision. And in terms of the gender, it, it, for the optics, looks good, but that's not why she's a partner. Partners, because they're a level of competency and how uh, well she... Um, represented clients in the firm and likewise with you guys and it's same thing same same kind of template the same uh, personality same um, goals same competency uh, was repeated over and over again and uh, it's really about the person and, and not about anything else it's who the who the person is when you're a law partner it's almost as close if not closer in many instances than your uh, spouse yeah, I always tell people I spend more time at the office than my own home, so I understand that, and I, we really are sort of like a family. I so there was something that I wanted to explore with you, and I, you may remember this. I don't know. Um, I had just started at the firm. You you all would work Saturdays, and I was not accustomed to working Saturdays because at the my first year of practice on most weekends, I was running to Brooklyn to see Emily. So I just, I didn't work weekends, not for lack of interest, but just had other things to do. So then when, when, when Emily and I committed to moving to Kingston, I was around and I knew that you guys worked. So it was like one of the first ever Saturdays that I worked and you, you had this uh, habit of opening the mail Saturday mornings and we would kind of hang out down in that room there. At some point, we'd all be down there talking shop, do the farmer's market, whatever. And I was making a copy. And I'm excited because I think I, I'm going to finally start making money. And because I was broke. And then you, I'm making a copy. I remember standing at the copy machine and you said, I'm the biggest loser in town. And I thought, okay, I misjudged this thing. I, I misjudged this. I'm not going to make money. This guy's telling me he's the biggest loser in town. What did you, what did you mean by that? Do you recall? I, I mean, I think you've said it to me at this point more than once, but, um, for the viewers and maybe young people who are thinking about their, their future, maybe in law. Um, I think you meant something more than, than the practice of law, but what do you mean by that? You're the biggest loser in town. Um, I, I meant it's almost on a statistical uh, basis, but quite entertaining, that I know I've lost more cases than anybody in the history of Ulster County, and, and uh, you know, multiple times. And how I got that is I've won way more cases than anybody in the history of Ulster County, and every case is not a winner. And, but every case is entitled to have somebody represent them competently. I would say that all the losses um, 
you know, we always have some introspection of what could we have done differently. But I would ask the judge uh, often, you know, what could I have done different? Uh, they said, not take the case. And so there was nothing about um, my level of competence or how I presented a case, but I've lost a lot of cases. And you do learn from your losses. So I learned uh, about different things that I could try that may be successful. And uh, in many cases, um, there was no money offered. They were just not going to pay a penny on the case. And I have to put my time, my money, work Saturday and Sunday preparing the case for trial, uh, knowing it was going to be a really long shot, but the person deserved it. The client deserved it. And so I became the biggest loser, uh, but not for a bad reason. And I became also the biggest winner. And how, how I did it was just that old ethic, hard work. And I think, I think that Derek and I have learned many things from you, but one of the things that we learned is we'll take the hard cases or sometimes we'll take the small case because it's the right thing to do or yeah like like my calls my my cases the exotic cases but i really do think that we have a reputation for not only taking tough cases that potentially have uh you know i should say the potential for a great outcome but we'll take tough cases because it's the right thing to do because somebody needs help. They, they've called three other lawyers and no one will help them. And you're like, ah, I'll screw around with it and, and see if and I can And there's been times them. over the years, lots of times when we've won cases that other lawyers have turned down. People have called around and you know, we took a shot in their case and they've worked out. Yeah, I can say numerous times I've had the client come to the uh, office with the Redwell files. The other lawyer handed it to me. I can't get, I gave up totally on it. It's not worth a dime. And I've gotten six figures and, and multiple six figures on the cases. Some at trial, some at settlement, some just because I put my name on it and went to court. And then the, the, it was a total change in the whole defense of the case. Just, and I'm not just kidding about it, just me showing up with the case. And then everybody knew it was a new ball game and uh, changed the, 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 I would say, the outcome, certainly. And I could give, uh, you know, documentary evidence on ones where, you know, minimal offer, ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 and get that close to a million on the case. And, 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 and literally, knew, I couldn't count the amount of times that happened. And then other ones, when people come in, they've spoken to other lawyers they told them how hard it was. Just the malpractice case that I settled a, a couple of um, months ago, they went to three other lawyers. They just turned it down. And I prosecuted the case. It went, went well. I thought it was a case from day one. And, uh, you know, it's a multiple six-figure settlement ultimately just before trial because it was a case and I was going to try it and it was going to win the case. And part of your success, uh, and I think it fits within this topic, is you take on and have always taken on a lot of cases, the good, the bad, the di the easy, the, the difficult part of your business success, I think, is taking a lot, settling a lot and and churning them through. Derek and I have learned that, too, and I sometimes say that it's a curse and it's a blessing <laughs> and a curse because we can't all we do is just take on all of these cases. And, and you know, it, it requires a lot. I mean, the practice of law is demanding. As you said, it's a jealous mistress. I think you have to be obsessed to some extent. I mean, it, it, you know, and, and that's part of why we're successful. But I think that that is something that you've taught me in terms of business model is, is it, you don't have to depend just on these big cases. You just help a lot of people and it all works out.
And you don't know sometimes on the way in. Yeah, that's true. Just the way it is. Just help the people. Sometimes they're not even a case. But then again, it goes to that where you get referrals, your reputation. They help me. I've had numerous people. I said, well, you have, you, I spoke to Mr. Bosch. I came in. I go, did we have a case? I go, no, no. You, you, you helped me. But it, really, it was really no case. But, you know, they come back again or they recommend a friend or family yeah. member to us. Why? Because you treated the people uh, the way they're supposed to be treated, professionally, competently, and didn't lead them um, to some place that they shouldn't be. We, you know, we didn't tell them, oh, it's, it's a case. No, I, I we tell people, frankly, that if, if Derek, John, Maureen, Eli, I don't think it's a case. It's definitely not a case. <laughs> <laughs> when I started for you, you, you wore a suit every day i think probably because you were in court every day right i mean you're you're a trial lawyer and uh but but where i was going with it is your practice now uh is spread throughout the hudson valley right i mean we go to duchess green columbia was it always like that for you yeah and pretty much centered in ulster ulster and duchess because you know northern duchess and, and i always had uh, i always had some cl- plenty of clients up in green county as well, because of the border, like Palinville and right. Cairo, and people shop, you know, in Kingston. So uh, the personal injury practice was until really the, the, the way things are online now yeah. that it, uh, that they were really uh, people didn't want to travel. People are poor; they're they're injured. It's hard for them to travel. Uh, they want to have a lawyer close by, you know, geographically. And um, so it's always really Ulster County centered. But I'd say about a twenty-five to thirty mile an hour, or thirty mile radius uh in in the practice but it's expanded now because of the internet yeah broke borders and and virtually you don't have to uh, go to court conferences in person um you go virtually and so that's much easier to represent a client uh who's uh, 100 200 miles away you're known in the community for your generosity where did that philosophy come about and when um I'm the beneficiary of charity. I always say that I've said that I'm the poorest person I ever met or became a lawyer. Uh, we had nothing, you know. I had, we had, you know, I didn't have a bed till I was in fourth grade. I had a couch that folded down, and my brother's feet went in my face. And um, so we were, you know, marginal and uh, not middle class. And uh, going through even, you know, even like in high school times, like you know, different things. I, I couldn't I couldn't pay I never went to camp or went to any place like that but you know they would just say oh you don't have to pay you know you can go play you know basketball at the Jewish community center I said well we're not a member you have to be a member oh no it's okay and so charity came that way even when my father passed away when I died just before I went in the when he died just before I went in the Navy um, the synagogue you know took care of the burial Um, scholarships I had you know when I was in high school they had four scholarships at the um, at the scholarship uh, uh, awards, and I got all of them. And the Rotary, Kiwanis, Lions, Student Council, um, I got them all. And was was I really smart? I was okay. I was fairly smart, but I had uh, infinite financial need. And those things were, those scholarships really were helpful. And and likewise, I got a region scholarship, so I didn't have to you know pay tuition when I went to college. So I was really the beneficiary of charity, um, principally scholarship. And uh, while don't have real limits, Susan and myself for you know the, the feed the hungry, um, medical, 
educational, different causes. We're, you know, I believe in giving to all of them as much as you possibly can. Uh, but number one is education. And uh, that's been um, my ladder to success. I don't know where I would be without education. My father, like I said, had an eighth grade education. He didn't really have great respect or any inordinate respect for people who are wealthy or politically influenced or famous. He respected people who are educated. So what he gave me was um, get an education. And so to help people, the first rung up, um, New Paltz, Ulster County Community College, Albany, where I, I went, we have scholarships at all of them for good reason. It gives a generally first-generation college um, students scholarship, given the ability to go to college. And, and then the community. The community has been so great to, um, to myself, to me and Susan and to my firm and to my friends, uh, to people I really don't know well, but people are in need. Um, give back to your community. That's I remember I struggling with charity. Uh, again, I, you know, I, was, I came out of law school broke as a joke. I had to move in with my parents just to survive. And then I started Bosch and Keegan. And I remember just every sponsorship that came in, you guys wrote a check. And and I'm thinking, oh man, I sign up with the firm and they're giving all the money away. Like what's going on here? You know, he's telling me he's the biggest loser in town and he's giving all the money away. I just, I really struggled with it at first. And then again, you said something, I think, I don't know, you were recognized for something and you said it doesn't, if it's not charity, if it doesn't hurt. And, um, and that was a moment for me. And I and I appreciate that education because it, it does feel good to give back. And I think you make your community better for yourself, your friends, your family, if you do give back. But I, I needed that education. So I just thought I would share that. I remember being scared to death that you guys were giving all the money away. <laughs> yeah, the uh, checks just, just flow out. So it's, it's <laughs> everywhere. It's like like every sponsorship everywhere. that comes in. <laughs> but, you know, and then, and but you get it. It's like you're, 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 you're as our law firm, we're entrenched, you know, and, and, and it, it feels like you have to do it and, and you want to do it, but it feels like the right thing because we wouldn't succeed without our community giving us the opportunities. Yeah, so, so I mean, I think it's easy, a, really, now that I have the perspective. And it's really part of the legal profession to do that. It's an ethos that uh, really uh, we should do as lawyers. You know, we are privileged. You know, do we get, it wasn't handed to us. You guys are just like me, you just earned it, man, you know, hard work, but uh, we became privileged and other people aren't and, and through no fault or of their own, they, they're hungry. They can't go, they can't do this, they can't do that. And I, I've been there. I know how it is to be embarrassed. You know, we didn't have a car, didn't have a house. And we moved, moved to low-income housing, Colonial Gardens, nicest place I ever lived. I didn't like being poor. And I needed help, and I didn't want, and nobody wants to ask for help. So if you give charity, you give to the community foundation, you, you give to different colleges, and, 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 and all the charities, they, they need our sponsorship. They need our help. And if we don't do it, who's going to do it? That's an interesting transition to uh, the issue about morals eth and, and ethics, the rules of professional conduct. So through your career, You've earned yourself positions on on ethics committees, uh, uh, judicial appointment committees. You've testified in trials uh, against judges for for doing the right thing. What's your perspective on why lawyers are held uh, to a higher standard in the community? Is the, is it a, is it the right standard? And 
Yeah, absolutely. And we're fiduciaries. And it all, um, how would I say, it? the foundational uh, premises is that um, we have to have integrity, period. Number one is integrity. And, and lawyers are put on the spot for their clients. They're often, um, you see criminal law, you're, you know, apologists for people. You see them on TV, the person could be a mass murderer, done some horrendous act, and the lawyer will look right in the camera and say they're innocent, which is true until they get convicted at trial. But, you know, it, it puts the lawyer on the spot. And, uh, but, you know, it's a little more deep in terms of what the, what the statements are they're legalistic statements, but the general public doesn't interpret them that way. But the lawyers do. So the lawyers are on that fine cutting edge very, very, very often. And um, they are the face of their client, their public um, persona, and they represent others. And um, you always have to have integrity personally. And it goes a long way. And, and you know, you, you know, you both go to trial. That's what jurors look at. They know right away, do they trust this person or not? And there is a bias against lawyers immediately. They're untrustworthy. You know, that's what the general public, you see them getting indicted. I don't have to tell you about current politics. I saw this morning, like nine different lawyers on, on the, uh, you know, the, uh, are on the spot who represented Donald Trump one after the other. They're like, whoa. They're, now they're in the crosshairs. And why? Because they put themselves on the spot, you know, and they represented their client, they thought zealously, but they have questionable um, conduct and, uh, and lawyers are pressured. And so there's always has to be that resistance and you have to have it in your core that you have integrity, honesty and integrity, period. And uh, if it didn't, the whole legal system would, would crumble and collapse. All right. Well, I think we're probably out of time. So one more thought from Eli Bosch. Where's the future of Bosch and Keegan and how it continues to serve our community? Uh, just It's just going to continue. You guys, like I say, have integrity, have the same ethos, um, how the future is going to be. One can't predict it, but you can only predict how you're going to act and you're going to work hard, um, be successful, have integrity, and support the community. All right. So that's it for our case in chief. Now we transition to, is it legal? So Derek, what can happen if your client's partially at fault and causing an accident? Does the person still have a case? They still have a case. Sure. Uh, there's uh, at, at trial, the jury will get to apportion fault between our client and the other party who may have caused the accident. Um, and you know, for example, a jury could split it 50-50, 25-75, any percentage. In New York State, in the, in the olden days, uh, that, that was not permitted, but the law changed, I think, in the 1970s, roughly, and uh, now it's, it's allowed. It's called comparative fault, and uh, so even if a person is 1%, um, or sorry, if the defendant is only 1% negligent, the plaintiff is still entitled to recover for 1% of their injury or any apportionment you know, beyond the 1%, all up to 100%. You mean if somebody's 99% at fault, they could win their case with Derek Spada as their lawyer? Theoretically, but I might turn that case down. That's what <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> but just talking in theory there. Eli, about how long does it take, on average, to litigate a personal injury case, uh, like such as a car accident or slip and fall, from when the client first meets with you until they receive their, their check? 
I would say approximately two years. Um, it has to do with the court system, uh, somewhat of a backlog. It also has to do with uh, uh, just time periods. Person comes in, you determine a case, takes maybe a month or two, file the papers, takes a month or two to get a response. Then there's an exchange of papers, takes a couple months to go through what we call discovery, exchange medical information, photographs, accident information, and then it gets on the court calendar, there's conferences, later on you do depositions, it takes about a year to get through depositions, then after the defense has the opportunity generally to examine your client by a doctor of their choosing, it takes another three, four months, then you get on the calendar, usually wait about eight months, so there's two years. And it's not usually such a bad thing, because in injury cases, usually you don't know the consequences of the injury, if there's permanent damage, for about a year and a half to two years. Because any time before that, your doctor and you are optimistic you're going to get all better. And you heal fast at the beginning, but at the end, there's, there's the long tail. I say that you hit a plateau. And is that plateau permanent? If it is permanent, you want to make sure that the uh, damages are awarded that um, will compensate for the permanent injury. And you usually know, know that something's permanent until 18 months to two years. Can I ask quick, are these cases taking the same amount of time that they used to take or are they taking longer? Because I feel like they're taking longer now than even uh, as compared to when I started, but maybe not. I think a little bit longer, John. And part of it has to do with electronics and and, uh, paper discovery is by the by. So it would take, you know, you could get paper out quicker than you can electronically, but the electronic discovery and investigation is exponentially larger. They get one thing comes in, they want five things from that disclosure. They went to a family doctor, they want the family doctor's records. They, the defense sees the family doctor's records. There's three other things the person got, your client got treated for. They want authorizations for those. So those things just make it, those items just make the process longer. All right, Eli, what are some of the common challenges or obstacles that you confront when handling personal injury cases? Well, everybody's against you. So it's good. Everybody's against you. As you know, uh, the insurance company, the defendant, often your client's own insurance company is giving a hard time getting medical treatment. They're gatekeepers to medical care. Uh, doctors have a, uh, an aversion to, uh, to treating people in, in accident cases because they know they're going to get dragged into court and they won't be able to treat their patients. They'll have to go to court on your case. Uh, they have to make tough decisions about per, uh, about permanent injury. A doctor will have to say that even though they treated the client that uh, and there's consequences, um, they don't want to attribute it to their lack of skill or uh, any problems they might have had with, with the client. Meanwhile, the clients are not um, easy. Clients are very needy. They're, they need help in um, uh, everything, helping get their lost wages, uh, making sure they can eat, and, and insurance companies pay very slowly, and so the client is often not happy because they have their bills come in on a monthly basis, uh, like no-fault lost wages. Sometimes it takes two, three months before they get uh, a payment. Meanwhile, uh, they live from paycheck to paycheck. So you have to help hold the client's hand, give, let them know you're working for, for them, and, and, and still having the case go forward. So it's just it's, you need a lot of um, uh, staff 
a lot of work. One of the least favorite things for people are just dealing with insurance forms. We do that for people. It, it is a lot of busy work. Um, and, and, and everybody in the court wants to resolve the case. Um, you want to resolve the case and the defense doesn't. They want to prolong it. So you have all these myriad of different um, challenges that just go into the case and it takes a lot of energy and perseverance. Derek, I'm curious, what are you, what's your take on that? What are some of the common challenges or obstacles that you experience as a lawyer handling personal injury cases? Uh, to me, it seems like just dealing with insurance adjusters is the biggest obstacle. You know, they're the ones who ultimately, like 99% of the time, roughly, uh, settle the case with you. But to get to that point, there's like phone call after phone call, email after email. They want more documents, more medical records, and that you just keep sending all this stuff while, while the case is going on. So you're going through all this discovery while this adjuster is like stepping in. And it's, you know, it's, it's not that they're difficult, but they just want more and more information. They consume and your ultimately, energy. And you give them all this stuff and they offer you $3,000. And you're like, <laughs> what? And they want to reach the, want to reach yeah, the yeah. boat and like choke the person. Right. And then it's, <laughs> so, yeah, then it, it takes time. That, and I mean, every Every company is different, you know, with with how they settle cases. But certain insurance companies start so low, they call you back like two weeks later, offer you four thousand dollars. Like, no, 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 this is a six figure case. Like, yeah, yeah. and then and then so you, yeah, you get there eventually, but it's such a, a process. You guys both gave very uh, technical or mechanical responses. I thought you guys were going to hit topics like gap in treatment, pre existing injuries or conditions. Crappy liability. <laughs> John, we ignore all those things. Those are the substantive <laughs> issues that I get stuck on. The mechanical stuff, it's like, well, that's part of the job. We got to feed the John, feed the beast. we wouldn't have yeah. any cases if we didn't have those oh, issues. That, my friend. And, and if we, they don't, uh, the insurance and, uh, uh, defense will invent them. Here's, yeah, a, you know. here's a challenge Derek and I talked about. Finding insurance coverage. It's like, oh, my God, my client's heart has this horrible accident or injury, but we can't find any coverage. So, all right. Well, those are your common challenges. That's it for Is It Legal? Now my favorite segment of the show. Let's get local. Eli, and I think you can, don't lo- don't limit it by border. Don't feel confined. Just give us your, give us your knee-jerk reaction here. What is your favorite ice cream place in, in the Hudson Valley? I like Dell's across the river, but I'm going to say also uh, Mickey Zigloo because my father, when he worked for Myron back in the 1950s, delivered the concrete blocks that built Mickey's Igloo. So I'll say in Ulster County, I'll go with Mickey's Igloo. Why do you like Dell's though? Oh, they have high butter fat content. They have oh, their nice. own cows and their jerseys. And my father was had a cattle truck at one time. And I know about the different uh, types of cattle. And jerseys are very high butter fat. And that means good ice cream. All right. Yeah. All right, Derek, your turn. What's your favorite ice cream location in the Hudson Valley? There's so many to choose from. Tough, it's a tough call. I'm going to go with Nancy's in Woodstock. Oh, Nancy's? Yeah. What's this now? Nancy's. It's Well, they just moved... Uh, they were right in Woodstock. They moved to Bearsville, right in front of the Bearsville Theater. Okay. There's a house. Across the way. Oh, no. it, there's a house. It's it's on the same property as the Bearsville Theater. Okay. But they're up close to the road. Hard or soft serve? Uh, I think they have both there, but it's um, it, it, it's hard. What do you like about it? Uh, the flavors are you know, just really intense, I'll say. It's like a homemade ice cream, and there's a lot of flavor in every 
flavor that they have. You know, there's just a lot to it, and it's not overly sweet. You know, sometimes you get a flavor that's it has like a lot of sugar in it. Yeah. So it's you know, it feels like it's more like I call it like real ice cream, if you will. Um, so you know, they they have several flavors to choose from, and there's a lot of flavor in their ice cream. So my family recently, we've been going to Cherries out in Stone Ridge area. Is that what that is? Yeah. Stone Ridge? Yeah. That was my <laughs> clients. The Garcia's opened it. Is that right? Yeah. I think it's a new ownership yes, it in the last two yeah. or three years, yeah. but we've been going out there. It's soft serve. I think to what you're saying, it, it has like a higher fat content, so it feels like thicker ice cream, but they have a good flavor selection. Kids like it. So we've been hitting up Cherries. Other than the car ride, it's worthwhile. And I, I also like Sawyer and Saugerties, the new, uh, new oh, one. Oh, I haven't tried it. In the car dealership. Yeah. yeah. Really good there. What's that? Soft serve? Both. They have everything there. They have a oh, big yeah. menu. Yeah. Okay, cool. I got to try that one. It, it looks like a cool spot. Yeah, it's cool. And that, that silver building, they, you know, they, they did a nice job with it. Yeah. Yeah. Derek? John, thank you for having me. You know, I like to talk. And uh, you, of course, that's my favorite subject. Yours, uh, like struggle, yours right? truly. And uh, so thank you. It's been fun. Thanks a lot for being here. And thanks for listening, watching us at home. All right. And if you enjoyed our show, please consider following us or giving Eli a like for today's episode. We hope that our uh, local Kingston followers enjoy this one especially. But that's it for today's episode of Upstate and Litigate. See you next time.